0: On this episode of AvTalk, the Transair 737 is raised from the ocean floor. The FAA is concerned the radio may be too loud. And we're sad to say, Jetpack Man isn't real. Hello, and welcome to episode 136 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Urbanitz. Hello again, Ian. How are you? Hello, Jason. I'm doing well. It's been a long time since we've talked in this particular case. It's been less than a week. How was the rest of
1: your journey to Chicago? It was great. Yeah. This past weekend, I went out to Chicago to visit yourself. and We also met up with uh, Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren, who did not get his blimpy sub from his frequent podcast guest checkbox thing. He got, he a, got hot a hot dog dog. He didn't get a blimpy sub. I mean, but, I'm not starting the, is the hot dog a sandwich fight
0: on this particular oh podcast.
1: No, no, no. But but he got a hot dog. He did, but it was good. It was a nice weekend in Chicago. I flew United on uh, 738 and a 319, two of the most luxurious aircraft in the skies. I'm kidding. They were both completely normal and fine. The flights were on time. Actually, our flight out, you know, it did that magic thing where it departs 30 minutes late because something was broken, but we ended up getting in early anyway. Ah, schedule padding is a heck of a drug. But then we did land in like Milwaukee.
0: You did. You got the tour. If anyone has flown into Chicago. Tell me about few that.
1: What, what, which runway is that? Because it seems to be the one I always end up on.
0: Yeah, so you landed on nine left. So it's either nine left or twenty-seven right, depending on which, you know, direction you're facing. You got the nine left treatment, which is actually slightly worse than if you're landing from the east, because at least if you're landing from the east, the, the high speed brings you onto the taxiway that will eventually bring you to the terminal. Whereas if you land nine left, you make the right off the high speed, and then you have to backtrack as well to eventually make it to the terminal. So I still haven't decided whether 10 right, which is the far south runway, or nine left, which is the far north runway, are are worse, but they're both located in different states from the actual terminal complex.
1: Yeah, it's I mean, this was Saturday morning so there wasn't that much congestion, but it did take almost 15 minutes to get from runway to gate, which all things considered not too bad, but try that on a Friday evening and that can easily become half an hour.
0: Yeah. At least, and that's if everything goes according to plan. And then if you have to go around the terminal complex to get to your gate, then you've added a whole another amount of time and then at that point you're wondering yourself, should I have just flown to Milwaukee and taken the train back?
1: But mm-hmm. Always an
0: option. Oh, well, It is always an option and a good one at that, depending on where you're trying to go and what you're trying to do. But I'm glad that we were able to get together and I'm glad you enjoyed yourself and I'm glad that you made it back uh, safely. And here yeah. we are on, on Wednesday, the 3rd of November. We've got a good show this week. We're not opening any flight deck windows at 20,000 feet this week, unfortunately, though that is now on my, hey, I wonder if they'll let me do it list. Which includes I hope all not. sorts of things that they'll never let me do, but that seems like a good one. Uh, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, Jason and I had a lot of fun talking with Malcolm Ridley, who's the the chief test pilot for for Airbus. So we'll talk more later in the show about what some of his team got up to in the intervening couple of days since we we spoke with him. But we begin this week's show with an update on what happened a few months ago, which was the the Trans Air Flight Eight One Zero. 737 200 freighter that made an attempted return to to Honolulu did not make it back. The crew ditched it in the water. They both made it out okay. The aircraft then sank to the bottom of the bay about two miles south of Honolulu. Over the past couple weeks, the NTSB, the salvage companies hired by the Aircraft's insurer with NTSB representatives, and if you read the press release, very interestingly enough, an endangered species monitor who hmm. was also on board to ensure that the, the salvage activities did not disturb any endangered species, including what the NTSB press release termed "false killer whales."
1: Oh, huh. so I guess this 737200 will not become an artificial reef anytime soon.
0: No. I mean, not unless they drop it back down, but they recovered the engines and the forward fuselage and the rear fuselage, including the the wings from the bottom of the bay and transported those back to Honolulu to start. They recovered the flight data recorders. Those are on their way to Washington DC, the NTSB lab. I assume Sean Payne will probably have a hand in that. We spoke with him in April of this year about what happens when the recorders get to the NTSB lab. We'll put a link to that episode in the show notes uh, so you can refresh your memory on, on what they're about to do there. The engines will be crated and shipped from Hawaii back to the NTSB Report just says, or a press release just said, the mainland. I assume wherever Pratt and Whitney wants to break them down under NTSB supervision is where they'll they'll be broken down and, and investigated. And then the the fuselage sections will remain in Hawaii. So who knows? Maybe they could end up being an, an artificial reef one day, or uh, cool. or just
1: just scrapped. Yeah, so some interesting information out by the NTSB that the aircraft actually came to rest on an ocean shelf at a depth ranging between three hundred and fifty and four hundred and fifty feet, which is quite deep. And that I did I was actually wondering how this worked, because rescuing or, or removing the fuselage from deep water like this is a time consuming expensive endeavor, and they did mention that transair's insurance provider actually contracted with the companies to recover the wreckage and also the cargo. So it wasn't the NTSB or the federal government fronting the bill to recover this aircraft, but actually the airline's insurance company and I'd be mm-hmm. very interested to see what cargo is on this aircraft and in what state it is actually in now,
0: according to the report, they recovered sixty five thousand pounds of cargo, so I don't know what it was, but uh, something 65,000 pounds of something or 60,500 pounds of something or 60,000, sorry, of something. So it'll be interesting to to see. We'll probably never know, but if we do know, that that would be interesting to find out. Pineapples. (laughs) Yes, that's transporting pineapples from island to island. Busy business. But it'll be interesting to see what the flight data and the cockpit voice recorders tell us, and also what analysis of the engines tells us after they issue the final report. This was the flight that experienced what the pilots termed an engine failure, and then at some point, the second engine either failed, or they thought it failed, or or they felt that they couldn't make it back, and and so they, they ditched on the water. And it was dark and they made it out, which is still, I, I mean, I think the biggest story here is that both pilots survived and, and were relatively okay. So now it's good that they've recovered the recorders and, and we'll get to learn a little bit more about what happened. I guess we stick with aircraft that are in pieces and talk about some larger aircraft more the-
1: intentionally in pieces.
0: Yes, more intentionally in pieces. So the first one is Singapore, I should say former, former Singapore Airline A380, MSN 21, which um uh, is now it's not in great shape. We'll put a link to the in the show notes what it looked like a few weeks ago, but it has definitely seen better days. You can see where they cut out the side panels, uh, hopefully to make, you know. Some souvenirs and things like that. But other than that, it, the claws and jaws and all those hydraulic pieces of equipment have, have been, really done a number on it. And then Emirates is doing something a bit more methodical with their first A380 teardown, and they'll be upcycling large portions of the aircraft into things that you can buy. So think, you know, seat covers being turned into bags and I assume there will be fuselage pieces to purchase and maybe some windows that you can put in your house and things like that. I know a lot of people are really interested in that. So stay tuned for details on how you can purchase a former Emirates A380 as yeah, they, they await the delivery of their final A380. Yeah.
1: Very strange timing that here we are at the the end of the days for some of the earliest A380s out there, while they're still taking deliveries of new A380s, which also happen to be the last ever A380s.
0: It's a really weird situation. I mean, just the entire history of the A380 from start to finish is just mind bogglingly bizarre. Because, like we've talked about before on the podcast, it was an airplane behind its time, an airplane ahead of its time, an airplane that got kind of pushed and pulled based on you know what it wanted to be versus what it ended up being.
1: So I, I just I feel bad for the A380 in general. It needed to be, like you mentioned, developed 20 years later than it was or 20 years earlier. But this is nothing new. We've talked about this before. Yeah. It's just wrong place, wrong time. But now you can buy pieces of it. That's great. So Maybe you at some point Maybe. we don't know what those at some pieces point. will be.
0: They'll be nice pieces. <laughs> they'll have lots of gold and wood trim.
1: I would like to buy the shower.
0: Do you Is think that they would just, one assumes that you could
1: get the shower somehow? I don't know. I, I, don't know. I mean, it, it, it's commonplace that airlines, when they dismantle an aircraft, they'll sell pieces of the fuselage or window or window framing or like the nose gear door or something. But, Beyond the seats, you really don't see much being sold from the interior of the aircraft. I mean, there probably isn't much of a secondhand market for A380 compatible first-class showers, is there?
0: No, especially when you are the only market. You, you probably market. already have you, – Yeah, you are the market. You probably already have all of the spare parts that you need. So Yeah, I, I think if you wrote them an email, you could probably you know, make them an offer.
1: Well, if you're specking out a new home and you need a, a tiny a shower that limits designed. your water to five minutes, yeah, it's. I've heard crazier ideas, not by much, but we talked about what a couple episodes ago with the guy who who put the L ten eleven
0: fuselage as a movie theater in his house. Yeah, this is a little, a little different. A little so, different. I mean, is it? Yes, it's just more plumbing. That's all. That's also true. Someone will do it. There's always someone out there who is dedicated enough to their craft that something like this will happen. The FAA has warned airlines that the radio altimeters within the airlines could be interfered with by The new 5G C band spectrum that is being uh, released for use. So we sent Jason out with his phone. No, we didn't do any of that. The radio altimeter on an aircraft tells an aircraft how high or its altitude above the actual ground. It used, you know, takeoff, climb, approach, and, and landing. The aircraft senses how high it is above the actual ground and uses that altitude versus the pressure altitude that it's using and the altitude that's being reported as part of the ADS-B data, which is, is not the altitude above ground. So Some differences there when aircraft are, are flying and you see it on flight radar 24 and you know it jumps. This is like when we talk about a plane taking off from a hot and high airport, or just a high airport, like say Denver, where the plane goes from zero to 5,500 feet as soon as it leaves the runway. It's because the the ground switch says, well, I'm on the ground, so of course my altitude is zero. But then it switches to the calibrated altitude, which is based on the barometric altitude, which is then based on pressure, which you know says, hey, I'm at, at 5,000 feet above mean sea level. While true, that's not how high it is above the ground. The radio altimeter tells the aircraft how high it is above the ground, and this new 5G C band spectrum could mess with that. They haven't seen that yet. As far as I, the FAA is not saying it is, it's saying just be aware and report back to us if you see
1: anything. Yeah. So a couple things here. This isn't like a 5G specific thing, this is a set of frequency bands that will happen to be used by the U.S. wireless carriers for 5G. C-band is in the upper 3 gigahertz spectrum, so like 3.5 up to a little over 4 gigahertz. and It has been used previously, I think in the U.S. by the military, but it is used elsewhere, I think in Japan extensively, and it has never been reported to actually cause any issues or reported issues, if I'm recalling that correctly. But here in the US, the FCC and the FAA are are bickering back and forth. The FAA is warning the FCC that this can happen. And the FCC is basically saying, go pound sand. We don't care. We need 5G. But in Canada, just to the north, we usually are pretty in tune on spectrum and things like this and wireless protocols. They've actually gone quite a bit farther with this and actually restricted the deployment of these 5G Antennas on the ground in areas where aircraft would be approaching runways. So, like, basically imagine the runway safety area for any particular runway and expand that out a mile or two, which may not be a big deal out in somewhere where, you know, Denver, where the airport is way outside the metropolitan area. But if you were to do that in somewhere like New York at LaGuardia or JFK, that would limit the ability to actually deploy the 5G network in a large portion of New York City, which would not be great. So, An interesting middle ground where it's not being restricted, but the FAA is kind of saying, hey, watch out for this thing. It may be a little wonky, which I guess is-
0: A little concerning. wonky as far as a radio you don't want You don't want wonky.
1: No, ask Turkish Airlines. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. That one predates our podcast by a little bit.
0: By a little bit, but that report's worth a read. Yes. So, Over the weekend, it was American Airlines' turn to have an operational meltdown. Uh, uh, American got the hot potato this time, huh? Yeah. It's uh, not great. A similar situation, it would seem, to what happened to Southwest. Weather uh, was a precipitating factor, and then based on where the weather was and, and how everything came about. They didn't have the crews to cover the schedule that they wanted to run. And so they ended up canceling nearly 3,000 flights.
1: Ooh, not great. Not great. Over a few days, not yeah. on a single day. Yeah, yeah. Not uh, great. And this still isn't... not, you know, not a small number of flights. No. Again, it's one of these situations where pre COVID, this would have been immediately recoverable. But these days, their operations are stretched so thinly that if something goes wrong let's say in this case at dfw where the wind dictated the need to use the crosswind runway therefore reducing the number of aircraft that could land per hour that should not ripple across their entire network for days on end but in this case they did not have enough flight attendants in the correct place to operate these flights and therefore it was just kind of a you know another 2021 airline meltdown in the us And there's a a great article published by, yet again, Brett Snyder over at Cranky Flyer that analyzes the last couple months of these meltdowns by these airlines. It is not surprising that this keeps happening, but it's interesting to look at the airlines It's happening to. American has had four days between June 1st and October 31st with at least 10% of its flights canceled. JetBlue has had four. Spirit has had nine. Southwest, five. Allegiant, four but more interesting uh, the number of days where there are between 5 and 10% canceled american is way up there at 15 but then there's allegiant who has had 34 days with somewhere between 5 and 10% of its flights canceled which is just kind of high and they've gone under the radar we've really talked about the meltdowns at southwest and spirit and american But Allegiant, they've been flying under the radar, haven't they?
0: Yeah. I mean, I wonder if part of that is perhaps- You're flying Allegiant. Take it or leave it. (laughs) I mean, I wasn't going to put it so bluntly. I was perhaps going to describe it as an unconscious bias based on business model dynamics. But yeah, to your point, that's baked in. It's kind of like old spirit, right? You know, where if you absolutely have to get there, maybe don't take them.
1: Yeah. And then Brett also goes on to actually analyze the number of flights added per employee at the airline, which is really interesting. And and Frontier is way up there. They've added 0.29 flights per employee. I think I'm getting that number right. United is way down there at 0.15 because remember, they really didn't, they really went out early to renegotiate with their pilots and sign a new contract and they didn't really furlough anyone, which is great. But if you're flying Southwest Frontier, Allegiant, Spirit, or JetBlue, they are really asking, and and American, they are asking way more of their existing employees to operate more flights per day without much slack. So we keep seeing this over and over and over with American Southwest Spirit that if there's the slightest disruption, they just do not have the operational slack to recover. And Crikey goes a step further and I never thought I'd hear this, but he demands regulation again, that air ops, uh, irregular operations keep happening and at this point that the American airlines, not American airline, but the airlines in America proven themselves incapable of dealing with irregular operations and they keep putting themselves in this mess even though they took how many, many, many billions of dollars during COVID to prevent this exact scenario from happening.
0: So Let me ask you this, good sir. Do you think
1: that an EU 261 style compensation scheme would change this? In the immediate term, no, because they're all doing what they need to do to ramp up hiring, but we never should have gotten into this place where the federal government was literally handing over an unlimited supply of money to airlines to keep their employees employed so that when flying became safe and fine-ish again, that we could just immediately ramp up and go back to normal. and All these airlines really let so many people go under early retirement and buyout packages that it was all for naught. Do I think an EU 261 scheme in the US would be beneficial? Absolutely, because we have found out the hard way that airlines keep melting down and they really don't go out of their way to get you to where you need to go. Outside of booking you on the next available flight four days from now, which isn't super helpful, and there's no real financial incentive for them to get you to where you need to go quicker, unlike in the EU where uh, the financial penalties are quite steep if there's any sort of within their control issue. But in this case, I just feel like the airline would game the system and say all of this is due to weather, just like Southwest, sure. it's due to weather sure. and air traffic control, which of course is nonsense and BS. But they're just gonna game the system. I really right. like, so, that. I would like yeah. that that rule here in the US, but I just don't see that happening. To
0: elaborate a little bit in case anyone listening is going, what are these guys talking about? The EU two sixty one compensation is the the rule under which airlines are financially responsible for getting you to where you need to be when they said they would do so. And based on certain our Period cutoffs, like four—I think it's four hours, eight hours—based on how late you're there, or if you don't get there, and it was within their control, you are owed money. Not the case in the U.S. Obviously, they have to get you where you're going eventually.
1: Yeah, eventually. and Frankie makes a good point that back in after the JetBlue St. Valentine's Day massacre, where airline passengers were stuck on board aircraft for eight, nine, ten hours because of just general incompetence at airlines. They had no financial incentive to make sure that passengers were let off the aircraft in a timely manner to the point where the government intervened and put the tarmac rule in place and said, if you have passengers on an aircraft on the ground for more than three hours, we're going to come after you and we're going to fine you an obscene amount of money per passenger. And It worked. airlines almost never, if they can control it, keep you on the aircraft for more than three hours because there's a, a financial incentive for them to never do that. And here we are at this point where airlines keep melting down and Brett Snyder is calling for regulation of, of kind of the same thing we have for the tarmac rule, but for airline irregular operation, self-inflicted meltdowns. Never thought we'd be talking about that, but here we are. <laughs> you know what else I never thought we'd be talking about?
0: Azul wanting to buy LATAM. Huh. And yet here we are. Yeah. So This was a, I don't want to call it bizarre because it makes
1: sense. I just did not see it coming right now. I mean, it makes sense, but it doesn't take the surprise away at this point because Azul is not a large airline. They're a, a South American, I'm not going to call them a regional airline, but a South American small-ish airline that dabbled in international long-haul flights with I wouldn't even call it moderate success. They never really expanded beyond their initial set of routes, but Azul buying not just LATAM Brazil, remember, Azul is based in Brazil, but all of LATAM, which means it wouldn't just be LAN, but TAM. And It feels like that merger isn't all that far back in the history books, right?
0: No. I mean, they, if I recall correctly, there are still aircraft painted in the preceding Airline livery. Not. I don't think all the aircraft have been painted into the new Latam livery. No, I don't even
1: think it's close. I think we still see wide-body aircraft here at JFK that uh, the seven sixes that are still in Tam livery.
0: Yeah. So I mean, it's not all that far back, and Latam's still just getting its footing back you know kind of not even post pandemic late stage pandemic so yeah it's fascinating to me that they want to do this and it's
1: not like it was not at all a merger this would be a a takeover a hostile takeover. A as hostile Ned takeover. Russell puts it. Um, yeah. This report we sh- we should mention came out from Airline Weekly from Skift. Our friend Ned Russell wrote up this article after an interview with the CEO of, I believe it was Azul. But this really is complex because remember Latam isn't just one airline; it's really kind of like a, a virtual parent airline for multiple airlines within South America. So there are lots of kind of subsidiaries in different parts of the group and, and for the most part Latam Brazil and Latam Chile still operate somewhat independently, I believe. So this would be really, really interesting and complex if all of this just kind of morphed into the South American airline, more so than it already is. But also there isn't actually much overlap between Azul and Latam right now, which is I found super interesting.
0: So the idea that this is kind of crazy—that's where that goes away. When you look at their route network, is you go, know, okay, that it's coming. Actually, do something. Yeah, very, very fascinating. And we'll see if this is just
1: bluster and posturing, or or if they're serious. Yeah, it would end up being at least a 464 aircraft airline, ranging as Ned says from ATR turboprops all the way up to seven eight sevens. So that's uh, that would be one hell of a mega airline. Would that be one of the world's largest airlines at that point? Four hundred twenty nine aircraft. I mean, it's a good size. Sorry.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's a good size. I, I would say it's in the probably second tier, I guess. Once you kind of
1: scrub away all the U.S. mega airlines. Yeah, um, and at that point, if this were to happen, an Azul Latam merger would be truly too big to fail. So, that would uh, really oh, that's, sunset that's a whole South American airline. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole other story, I guess. Poor little goal. They'd be <laughs> up for so much competition.
0: Oh. Oh, poor goal. Let's check in on AHA. What are they up to? Besides only having A. Ah, they're still missing
1: HA. Oh, right. They started service and yeah. – um, they're not quite sure when they're going to do the rest of their name. They they got the A part, but they don't have the, the H, the second A part. This comes out of mm-hmm. an interesting article from Jeremy, who we already talked about once on this podcast today. But in an interview- on, we're really going
0: to have to buy him a sandwich. We're yeah. going to have to buy
1: him a damn sandwich. We'll come, okay. come to New Brooklyn. We'll, we'll, we'll go to Blimpy again. But yeah, the interview with the CEO of, I guess, ExpressJet Aha was interesting in that they don't sell on online travel agencies. They don't have the hotel part. They don't have the adventure part. So they just have the A, the air. And when asked when that's going to happen, their CEO kind of said to know, maybe next week, maybe in a thousand weeks. We don't know. And again, this interview was published on uh, Runway Girl Network by Jeremy. Go take a look at that. But I have never really read an article with the CEO who was so nonchalant and so uninterested in the details or are so unsure of the details, I should say. They are now flying flights from places to Reno, but they cannot sell you a hotel. They cannot sell you an adventure. So We're just going to call them A for now on. They're not aha. They're just A, exclamation point. A
0: period. I'm not even giving the exclamation point. I'm just calling them A period.
1: Why don't we just call them Express Jet? We could do that. We could do that. Yeah. Let's just call them ExpressJet.
0: All right. Other new airline news Avello launched their much ballyhooed New Haven to Orlando flight. What, today. what was that? Ballyhooed? Ballyhooed. Look it up. It's, okay. a, it's a 25 cent word. So that happened. And then, as we are contractually obligated to do, we must mention at least one airline that can never die per episode, ITA or ITA, has joined SkyTeam. Jason, I know that you share my shock and surprise that they have joined SkyTeam.
1: I am shocked and surprised that they went with the alliance that was already integrated in all of their systems and ready to go from day one. It's shocking news, right? Shocking. I am shocked.
0: Let's talk about some flying things. We've got
1: a. The whole podcast has been about flying things. No, like actual flying things, like right now. ITA is fine. Uh, Okay. If you say so.
0: Airbus and a bunch of other French partners. Let's see. We've got Dassault, we've got Onera, we've got the French Ministry of Transport, and of course, Saffron have all teamed up, and they ran the first Airbus A three A three nineteen Neo on one hundred percent sustainable aviation fuel, a single engine on the A three nineteen Neo test aircraft. That's uh, registration at DAVWA. For those that want to. Track that out. That flew at the end of October, and that is the beginning of the sustainable aviation fuel. This fuel is being made by Total Energies from hydro processed esters and fatty acids, and that's uh, basically used cooking oil. So, French fries into jet fuel, as far as, as that is concerned. Which
1: is not a new concept, seeing as that no. you know, biofuel for vehicles has existed for decades at this point. Never really. Took off, pardon the pun, but if it's going to, they're going to pivot it to jet fuel, that's nice, I guess.
0: Yeah. I mean, the the idea for these tests is that you're making sure it's one of those things that we know it's going to work, but because it's aviation, we have to test it, you know, on the ground, in the air, over and over and over again to make sure that we can certify these things and that everything is going to work right 100% of the time. So that was one to follow. We get to uh, see an A319 actually do a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. That's okay. okay. I think China Southern actually
1: actually took delivery of one quite recently. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah. At least somebody's got one. Believe it or not, they do exist. They are not a popular aircraft by any means, Mm, but they do exist. They're out there somewhere. The
0: other big story, I guess, as far as- well, we've got two really, really big stories. One is one that we've talked about in the past couple of weeks is the Chicago O'Hare International Airport automated transit system is finally reopening after nearly four years inoperable, so you won't have to take a bus between all of the terminals. It'll cut Unless down on the time. Unless you want to. Yes. The the bus service will still continue 24 hours, (laughs) seven days a week, even after they open the people mover. Why? Jason asked them and they said, well, who knows what they actually said? Basically, I'm not (laughs) sure how to interpret
1: their message. But remember, this is a project that was supposed to be done in like, twenty nineteen before COVID was even a thing. Yeah, it, was supposed, so they, it was supposed to take like eighteen right. months they, to be. They done. can't even use COVID as an excuse, but of course they did anyway. But this was a major international airport, one of the busiest in the nation not having its, One of the uh, busiest in the world, good sort One sir. of the Thank busiest in the world, much. that's true. I'm sorry. One of the busiest airports in the world not having a functional transit system between terminals, which is especially annoying since all international arrivals in O'Hare Go to Terminal 5, and if you're connecting, you need to go to another terminal, uh, which is a problem when the thing that brings you between the terminals doesn't actually work. And so they've spent many, many, many tens of millions of dollars on replacement buses, but the ATS is back only between 1030 AM and 830 PM until sometime in early 2022. So we're not done yet. The drivers need to sleep. That's true. Wait, they're driverless. Oh well then I got nothing. We we got nothing. But if okay. you hate yourself and love buses, <laughs> you can still take the bus twenty four seven instead of the train because for some reason Chicago O'Hare International Airport is still operating the buses while the train is moving because Chicago is quite possibly the most corrupt city in the world and someone's gotta oh. get paid. Somebody's got to get paid. The buses must keep rolling for no reason, probably because the contract's already paid. I just want to point out that we made sure that you got a hot dog good, sir,
0: and a beef this weekend, and that was That doesn't take away from the corruption. I don't don't know. Anyway. I got to see the trade two days before it started operating, so there's that. There is that. Okay. so Remember we talked about People seeing jetpacks when they were trying to land at Los Angeles and there was over and audio over. from you know these pilots saying, I see a guy in a jetpack, and and that's what's going on. It now turns out that it was probably a life-sized balloon in the shape of Jack Skellington, the lead character in the Tim Burton movie A Nightmare Before Christmas.
1: Huh. Yeah. Ha! Huh. I mean, it's not that surprising that pilots seeing this thing would assume it's Jetpack Man or whatever, because since they're going quite fast and the thing's probably going in the opposite direction or something, and it's really far away. But always take these reports with a grain of sand. I mean, how many times have pilots reported a drone and it turns out to be a bird or, or nothing at all? But in this case, it was a life-size balloon man thing. Yeah. So. Uh, Close. So this all came Who's about this thing.
0: I, now that's a good question. They received images of this thing, and then a Los Angeles Police Department helicopter last year got video of this particular thing. And so now they're, I guess, closing the book on these sightings and going with the Jack Skellington balloon. So if there is in fact a Jetpack Man, I guess he's off the hook.
1: Yeah, I am. Disappointed but not surprised that Jetpack Man is not real. You know, two steps forward, one step back for aviation. It seems like we'll never get those flying cars. We'll never get those jetpacks. But in this case, it uh, seems like the simplest answer was actually the correct one. It was just yeah. balloons. But who's launching the damn
0: thing? I mean, th- that one mystery solved, one mystery to solve. We have to know. We'll be moving to Los Angeles this afternoon to begin our investigation. Lastly, if anyone has a couple million dollars or less, maybe, the former Mexican presidential 787 is now available for your purchase manufactured in 2010 with only 881 cycles and 1741 hours of flying time it seats 80 passengers has a vip cabin including stateroom and shower it has its own air stairs so you don't you know don't need services you can fly 7500 nautical miles and it includes a crew rest compartment for the flight crew and for the cabin crew you have the ability to fly nearly anywhere in the world in a well appointed 787 VIP configuration and 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 you can name your own price
1: i want to buy it now for very few dollars but this is this is the saga that never ends the mexican presidential 787 remember this is one of the 787 terrible teens that i'm sure mexico got for maybe not a steal, but a steep discount for their new presidential aircraft that the new incoming president said, this is a, a sign of opulence. I don't want it. Put it up on the market. But I don't think we've actually seen this level of imagery from the interior of the aircraft before, which had spent quite some time getting this interior configured. And now I know why, because it is, I'm not going to say over the top, but it is opulent. And nice. No, it's surprisingly not over the top. It's I, nice, though. It's it, it nice, is real nice. But it it is very clearly designed to be a VIP aircraft for a single person. So there is like one bedroom with shower and bed and recliner, and the rest of the aircraft is kind of like in a premium economy configuration, where it's just a bunch of seats, not flatbeds or anything. So if you are a single person who likes the flying style and has exactly 79 friends, Mm -hmm. this is a great aircraft.
0: So uh, we'll take a ride. If you do buy it, feel free to. We could convert it into a podcast studio. Yeah. I
1: bet the acoustics are great in that bedroom. I think that has a conference room. We'd have to. We'd have to figure that one. It out. must. If it's a presidential aircraft, it must have some Guy, sort of have very control room or, or somewhere to launch yeah. the nukes. I don't know. I okay.
0: While we discuss Jason's understanding of history and global armament, which is not the purview of this podcast, we will say that this has been episode 136 of AvTalk, a podcast mostly about commercial aviation. and We thank you for listening to what I hope has been An enlightening and interesting episode. We'll be back next week. Next week, the US is opening on Monday. We will be recording Wednesday of next week with some folks who have been charting the return to. I guess what we'll say some semblance of normalcy and how that has played out both in the US and around the world and some of the travel restrictions that are still in place that will remain in place after next week. So that should be an interesting episode next week. But for now, this is about episode 136. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rubinowitz. Thanks for
1: listening.